Hey, Harvest, thank you for tuning in and uh, watching this broadcast. I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the second chapter of the book of John. Turn to John 2. We are in the middle of a series, or actually the third week of a series that we're going to be in all fall. It's called The Way, The Truth, and The Life. And we are looking at Jesus's life kind of in a chronological order. We're gonna be jumping from gospel to gospel and we're gonna be in the first 11 verses of John 2 this morning, looking at Jesus's first sign or his first miracle. And I would just want to remind you that as we jump from gospel to gospel, each of the different gospel writers wrote their different story or gospel telling the events of Jesus's life with a specific purpose in mind. For example, Matthew wrote to make the argument that Jesus was the son of David, that he is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, you will constantly see him say, uh, this was done so that this prophecy could be fulfilled because he was on mission to show that Jesus was Messiah. Mark is recording Peter's gospel. And Peter is just kind of a, I'm just gonna give you the facts. From event to event, very, very little teaching, making an argument that Jesus was the son of man. In Luke's gospel, Luke is a physician and he is focused on the humanity of Jesus Christ, that though he is 100% God, he is also God incarnate. He is fully man and he focuses on the suffering of Jesus. And as we turn to the gospel of John, John is writing his gospel. He is arranging the stories that he has included in his gospel in a certain way to communicate a certain truth or a certain thesis that he's arguing for. And we don't have to wonder what it is because John tells us. In John 10 chapter, or in John 20, verse 31, it says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, hear this, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John's writing is this. He is writing that we would believe that Jesus is the son of God. He's making the argument that Jesus is God. But it's more than that. In making that argument, it doesn't just leave us there. He's making the argument that by believing we would have faith or by having faith, we would believe in his name that he would become our savior. I like what he says in John 21, verse 25. He says, there are many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what John is communicating is he's carefully sifted through the events of Jesus's life and he's taking different events, trying to communicate that Jesus is the son of God. And as we pick this story up in John 2 and we're looking at Jesus's first miracle, here's, here's one of the questions we've got to ask ourselves. Why did he choose this story? So let's dig in. I'm just going to kind of read through the text to begin. I'm going to stop and comment on a couple different things that I want you to know. And then we're going to jump into application fairly quickly after we read through the story. So let's pick it up in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Mother of Jesus, that's Mary. For some reason, John, throughout his gospel, never refers to her by name, always calls her the mother of Jesus. Verse two, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, a couple things. Um, in the New Testament, in first century Palestine, weddings could go on as long as a week. They were, they were big parties. They were big events. And different than today, 
Um, the weddings back then, it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to pay for the wedding. And so Mary is at the wedding. She appears to have some relationship and responsibility to the groom and his family because she is aware of the problem that they've ran out of wine. She is trying to problem solve and, and, and come up with a solution to that problem. The language actually indicates that though Jesus and his disciples were invited, Mary was there. And some scholars have said she had a relationship with the groom and the family that gave her some responsibility in the um, pulling off of the wedding. So she's there, uh, the groom's family. This is a big deal. They've run out of wine. In, in the first century to run out of wine, that's not the best way to start your new marriage with the bride and the groom. As a matter of fact, in Jewish law in the first century, it was possible for the bride's family to sue the groom's family. There was provision in the law that if they ran out of wine at wedding, that was a big enough offense that you could litigate it. So this was a huge embarrassment for the groom's family. And Mary has taken the initiative. There is a problem. There is a crisis. You know, just interestingly, Joseph isn't mentioned. Joseph hasn't been mentioned in the story of Jesus' life since Jesus was 12 years old, back by Luke in Luke chapter 2. And, and most assume, and I believe that by the time Jesus is on the cross, Joseph has died by that point, not only because of the absence of, mess, of mention of Joseph throughout Jesus's ministry, but because on the cross, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother Mary to the disciple John. So it's most likely that at the time of Jesus's public ministry, Joseph has already passed away. And what that means is that Jesus is being the oldest son, being Mary's firstborn, he has the responsibility of taking care of his mom. He is the provider. He is the protector of Mary. So it is natural for Mary when she is confronted with a crisis, when she has a problem, when she has a need, where is the first place that she goes to? Who does she first turn? It's to Jesus. And I would just say, just setting kind of the groundwork for this story, uh, we can learn a lot from Mary. Where is the first place that we need to go? Where is the first place that we should turn when we have a need, when we are in crisis? To our Savior, to our protector, to Jesus. The story goes on and says this. It says in verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And, and, and I just got to pause there for a moment because um, that's an unusual response. Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And, I, and I'm just trying to think through how that would play out in my house if I had that response, if Kristen came to me, if, if Kristen were to come to me and be like, hey, David, we've got a problem. And I was like, woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't think that would fly well with uh, Kristen. I, I think I'd hear about that response. So I wanna work through this a little bit slowly so we understand exactly what Jesus is doing. When he uses the phrase woman here, um, that is not a disrespectful term. It is a polite term, but it's not a warm term. It's an unusual word for Jesus to use. Now he uses the same word on the cross when he says to John, hey, take care of this woman. She's entrusted to your care. And, and this response of Jesus has given commentators fits because quite honestly, it's a rebuke. It's not just that he said woman, but it's woman, what does this matter have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And so Jesus is, he's, he's rebuking his mom, which makes me want to go off on just a quick little rift. When is it okay for us as children to rebuke our parents? 
Some, some I've ran into this as I've been a pastor, that sometimes I'm counseling with a young couple or some kids in their 20s or some younger adults, and they're starting to get to that stage where they look back at their parents and see all the deficiencies and the mistakes their parents made when they were raising them. And they haven't gotten to the stage where they've got high schoolers and there's a little bit more humility in, because of the mistakes they're making as well. But in that season, sometimes kids want to go back and critique their parents. And I would say this, if, if Jesus is rebuking his mom here, when is it okay for us to rebuke our parents? And here would be my caution for you. You can rebuke your parents when you are sent by God for the salvific purpose of saving the world and your mom or your dad is trying to knock you off that mission or distract you from that mission. If those are your particulars, go ahead and rebuke your parents. Other than that, do what Ephesians 6 says, honor your parents. I I think most parents, maybe not all, but most parents did the best with what they could while they were raising you. And I think in this season, we need to have some trust that in spite of the fact that our parents might not have been perfect and they might've made some mistakes and there might even be some things that you're working through now because of things that happened back when you were a kid or in that household and some of the effects of your folks' parenting or the home that you grew up in are still things that you're dealing with or that you struggle with. I think we have to have room for some grace and some kindness that we can honor our parents and we can trust the fact that God didn't put us in that family under those parents for random reasons, that he was working all things together for our good. But in this season, Jesus gives a mild rebuke to Mary. He, she says, what, what, is, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour is not yet come. And I believe that that's the key to unlocking what Jesus is trying to communicate here. When Jesus uses that phrase throughout the gospels, my hour is not yet come, when he says that to someone, what he is saying is to the person he's speaking to, he's saying, listen, you do not have the authority. You do not have the position. You do not have the relationship to dictate to me what I should be doing. I am on specific mission sent by God to accomplish the purposes that he intended. And he's communicating to Mary, his mom, he's saying, listen, though I'm still your son, our relationship is shifting. You can not only just view me as your son, but you also need to see me as your savior, the Messiah, the son of God. And so we see in this circumstance, Jesus mildly rebuke his mom. And then we go on and read in verse five, it says this, Jesus, or it says, Mary, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We can, we can learn a lot from Mary in this story because that's really good advice. Actually, let's make that the big idea this morning. The big idea is simply this. Sometimes moms give the best advice. And in five words, what Mary does is she communicates most of what we need to know about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. She turns to the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you. Really, really good advice from Mary. And then in verse six, we read now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus looks and he sees that as people entered the wedding feast or the banquet, they had to wash themselves. They had to purify themselves before they went in. It was part of Jewish law, part of Jewish custom. And Jesus sees those jars, now you gotta get this, containing somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. And he repurposes those jars. Look at what it says in verse seven. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they did exactly what Mary asked them to do. They said, we're going to do whatever he tells us. And they filled them up to the brim. 
verse eight. And Jesus said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So so here's the question, as you consider this story, why did John pick this as the great unveiling of the son of God, the Messiah? Why a simple miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding in a remote part of Galilee in this small city of Cana. Why is this the story that John, of all the stories that he could have told, zeroes in on to begin to explain who Jesus was so that he could convince us that he's the son of God? It seems like an unusual story to pick. I listened to a sermon this week by um, Tim Keller, a pastor out of New York City. And he said, one of the reasons I believe that uh, the Bible and the gospel accounts to be so true is they pick the goofiest stories and the goofiest details. And I believe that holds true here. But I also believe that what John is doing in picking this story is incredibly profound. John is going to communicate something in chapters two, three, and four of his gospel that is very important for us to understand about Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, He's bringing something completely different than what the world has ever known before. It is completely different than what the Jewish leaders and religious leaders of their day had put their hope and trust in. He is bringing with him the good news that he has come. And one of the reasons that he has come is so that we may know joy. So that's the story. Let me kind of work our way back through it and make some application as we go through. I'm just gonna give you four quick takeaways as we go through this story. And here's the first thing that I want you to understand. Here's the first point of application that I would make. Number one, the wine always runs out. Now it's interesting. Wine was a staple drink in the near East in first century when Jesus was there. People drank a lot of wine. It was a drink that was available but more than just a a drink that people consumed, wine throughout the Old and New Testament, it's used as a symbol for joy. I won't take a lot of time to develop this. Just let me show you a couple different passages. Psalm 104.15 says, wine gladdens the heart of men. In Isaiah 55, verse one and three, Isaiah is calling the nation of Israel back to God. And he says this, he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Israel has fallen into idolatry and the prophet Isaiah is calling them back. And he says in verse two, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. Jesus will use wine in the last supper with the disciples. He will take the cup after dinner. He will say, this is the new covenant in my blood. And it's interesting when heaven is described for us, the little bit that we can understand from our perspective on earth, often in heaven, the celebration and the joy that we're experiencing as we're reunited face-to-face with our savior is described as a feast. And in Isaiah, 
the 25th chapter, it says this, speaking of when Christ returns, it says, and on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So wine is throughout scripture used as a symbol of joy. And you need to understand wine is never forbidden for the people to drink. It's, it's never, you're never told that you can't have wine, but you are warned over and over again in Old and New Testament, don't drink wine to excess to the point where you become drunk. Wine is not forbidden, drunkenness is. And it's clear in the Old and New Testament. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 5.22, we have this warning, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink. And then a longer, more kind of colorful, descriptive warning of the danger of wine is found in Psalm 23. It says this, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Gives you the answer. Verse 30, it says, those who tarry long over wine, who go and try mixed drink, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Uh, You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, the one who lies on the top of the mass. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. So wine, just so I can summarize, is a symbol of joy throughout the Old and New Testaments. But there is also a warning that if we abuse wine, if we give it higher significance, if we make it a higher priority, if we abuse it and it becomes our focus, it becomes destructive. And I believe that that's one of the things that John is trying to communicate to us in this gospel with this miracle. The wine always runs out. Many of us have tried different wines from this life. We have had different pursuits and different things that we have thought would bring us joy, would make us happy. But at the end of the day, a pursuit of the things that this world provides without making Jesus our first passion, the wine always runs out, runs out in different stages for different people. It's interesting, this week I saw a statistic put out by the CDC speaking of the suicide rate among teens in our country. And it gave the stat that amongst teens aged 15 to 19, over the last decade, suicides have increased 76%. That is a frightening statistic. Even more disturbing, it went on to say, preteens, those in the age of 10 to 14, Over the last decade, suicides have increased 300% just in the last 10 years. What's going on? What's broken? What's wrong with our culture that kids 10, 12, 15, 17 years old are saying, I've had enough of life. The wine always runs out. For some, it's in their uh, middle age and they've maybe reached their 30s and they've been able to achieve or to experience so many of the things that they thought would make them happy. Maybe they're married, maybe they've had some kids, maybe they've had some success in their career and they look around them and they should be happy in this stage of life, but they're not happy. And the sad truth is this, that often the wine doesn't run out just when we're in difficult circumstances or trials. Sometimes the wine runs out 
when we're in the middle of some of the best seasons of our lives and we look around and we say, how in the world can things be so good? And yet I'm still missing the joy that I thought I'd experience. For some, it's in their later years, they look back over their lives and there's so many things they would have done differently. So many things that they would change if they could go back in time. Every one of us will find that if the thing that we pursue is the thrills and the enticements that this world has to offer, eventually the wine always runs out. It is a guaranteed failure when we pursue the things that God has given us to enjoy instead of pursuing God as the ultimate. John uses wine here to symbolize joy. And it is a complete kind of summary of the human experience. The wine always runs out. Here's the second thing. We've settled for the cheap stuff. Don't miss the symbolism of the story. One of the things that's taking place is Jesus is going to turn water into wine in the very vessels that are used as part of the Jewish ritual and system of the law. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, religion on its own will not bring the joy that I am able to provide. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, so many of the, of the Jewish people were caught up in the routine of the religious system. When I think of this idea, we've settled for the chief stuff. Two things I'd point out, here's the first. We have an incredible capacity to fall into patterns of behavior that are comfortable. We, we love to fall into patterns. We love to fall into routines. And this even happens for us in our Christian walks. We're used to going to church every Saturday night or Sunday and we go to the same campus and we sit in the same seat and we pick the same donut and we love our routines, don't we? But you need to understand Jesus was here. The purpose of John starting in John 2 with this first miracle, he's here to disrupt what is normal. In John 2, 3, and 4, the theme of these three chapters, John is saying there is something new here. The old has passed away. And and Jesus is on the scene breaking and disrupting the routines of the Jewish people. And, and, and I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm standing talking to a camera. You guys are watching online. 2020 has been something, right? And, and, and so much of this, quite honestly, it just stinks. And, and I'm ready to get back to normal. I'm ready to get back to routine. I miss gathering as a church. I believe that gathering is essential. But in this season, I don't want to waste this season of, Disruption, And maybe we should be asking ourselves maybe some of these questions that maybe we could see differently than any other time in our life. In this season, are we just frustrated that our routine has been disrupted? And maybe are we chasing the things that religious people do rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ? I really hope in this season for our church and for our people, we are learning to place our joy in Christ and Christ alone. Too often we settle for the cheap stuff. And then I would just say life becomes less fulfilling the more we make it about ourselves. If you look on the news, everybody's demanding their rights, equal say, uh, don't trample on our rights. It's a pandemic socially in our culture. And I know this, as, as I go through life, the more I make life about myself, the more quickly irritable, the more quickly angry, and the more quickly frustrated I become. This can show up by somebody riding the left lane and not letting me drive my normal, say, 70. But like that person's stopping me from getting where I'm going. And all of a sudden, I'm frustrated to a level. Like, where did that come from? Well, only one I'm concerned about is myself and where I'm going and whether I get there. 
when I need to get there. The more life is about you, the more miserable and frustrated you'll become. The more life is about others, about Christ, the happier you will become. We, we, we need to dismiss the, the, the cheap whine of, I need to make life all about myself. I need more me time. Um, I need more self time. It's nonsense. So the wine always runs out. We've settled for the chief stuff. Here's a third one. Jesus bought us the good wine. Jesus bought us the good wine. I'm, I'm gonna be honest, I'm not much of a wine drinker. And uh, I can go to certain restaurants and I know that wine can really vary in price. If you go to a really nice restaurant and they have a nice um, collection of wine, you can get bottles of wine into the hundreds of dollars and wine can get really expensive. In some bottles, I looked this week on Google, some bottles have auctioned for hundreds of thousands of dollars, old vintage wines. And, and people can get pretty crazy with their wine collections and what they're willing to, to spend to buy wine. And it's not not a wine drinker myself. Like, I, I don't know, could there be that much difference between a $100,000 bottle of wine and the box you can get at Wesco? Like, like I don't know. But, but, but here's what I know. Jesus didn't skimp when he bought us the good wine. It's interesting, in this passage, uh, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And it's interesting, we see that phrase throughout the gospels. And what it tells us is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, at that wedding in Cana, at the first miracle, he's already thinking about the end of his mission. His focus on, is on what he's there to accomplish. A pastor by the name of Edmund Clooney said it this way, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I can sit amongst all this world's sorrows and sip the coming joy. Jesus was on mission. It says in John 7 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, but he did it privately. And the reason given was his hour had not yet come. In John 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple and the teaching that he's giving is so um, outraging the religious leaders that they want him arrested. They want him killed, but it says they're unable to do that because his time has not yet come. Jesus in the garden, as he's praying, and as the soldiers approach, he says to his disciples, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. So Jesus is on mission throughout his entire ministry from beginning to end, focused on the hour when he will pay the penalty for our sin. The wine he bought for us to enjoy, the joy he wants us to know was not purchased cheaply. Jesus prayed in the garden shortly before he was betrayed. It says in John 15, speaking to the father, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying the reason that he came was so that we could know a joy beyond what this world could ever offer. And the argument that I would make is simply this, you will never taste the wine that Jesus offers until you make him your passion, your primary pursuit. And here's just the fourth point of application. The wine Jesus offers ages well. So often, Kristen and I will look back over our lives and we've made good choices and we've made bad choices. And as we look at the choices that we've made, been married 37 years hasn't always been easy, hasn't always been the easy thing to stay 
faithful, to stay committed, to do the things as a husband and wife and to fulfill the roles that God has called us to do. But I'm often shocked we'll sit in a counseling room with a young couple who might be struggling in their marriage and we give them counsel from God's word and because they're desperate, they'll try it for a while. And guess what? When they do what Jesus tells them to do, all of a sudden the relationship begins to heal, their communication gets better. They begin to experience joy once again in their marriage. But sadly, sometimes more troubles come, more trials come in life, and that couple will look at us and we can look across the table or across the room at them and we know they're not listening anymore. They've made the decision, what you're saying isn't true, what the Bible says isn't true. We've tasted of it, but now we're not committed to it any longer. And I'm always shocked, like, how can this young couple at the brink of divorce look across the table at Kristen and I married 37 years and say that we don't know what we're talking about when it comes to marriage? And that's a, that's a minor slight when we consider that so often we look at what God's word says about marriage, about sex, about alcohol, about submission, whatever the topic may be. And we say, no, we know better. No, God's word's outdated. Let's make the Bible say something that it doesn't actually say. What arrogance for us to believe that we know better than what God's word says. Mary looks at the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. What, what great advice. Life's not complicated. Do whatever he tells you. So, even as I close, I'm just gonna ask two questions and I'll be honest as I've asked myself these questions in preparation for this message, haven't been often, haven't been overly thrilled with my answer. Here's, here's the first one. How's your joy? How, how's your joy in this season of, well, 2020, can I, can I just kind of nicely say disruption? As life has thrown many of us a, a curveball, has, has this year has been difficult to navigate? Has there been frustrations and inconveniences? And how's your joy? It's a tell on what you view as your source of joy. If your answer, like my answer is, well, it, it's not where I would like it to be. Here's a second question. Are you doing what he asks you to do? Are you doing what he asks you? It's not that complicated. Mom's advice is usually pretty good. Do whatever he tells you. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, hopefully you have experienced through your life the joy of knowing that when you follow Jesus, your joy is increased. Even the joy in the simple things that God has given us in this world to enjoy, family, our, our jobs, our friends, our relationships, they're enhanced when Jesus is the focus and the passion of our lives. And if you're not saved, I would just encourage you, you might be at the place where you've come to the point where the wine's running out and you're starting to realize that life and the joys that this world has to offer, they don't last, they don't endure. Jesus offers us something greater. He, he came that our joy may be complete. He offered salvation by his work on the cross. He didn't, he didn't buy our joy cheaply. He did it with his blood. And when we put our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ, we can know the joy that he desires for us to know. Let's pray. Father, do not let us be a people that loses hope. Father, we pray for our country. We pray in this season of just turmoil that you would use it in ways unexpected, that there would be revival 
not just in our country, but in our hearts. Father, teach us to look to you as the source of our joy. It's in the name of your Son, our Savior, the source of our joy, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.